Science proves quality sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed senses your movements and automatically adjusts to help keep you both effortlessly comfortable. And it's temperature balancing, so you stay cool. So you're at your best for yourself and those you care about most. Life-changing sleep, only from Sleep Number. It's our Black Friday sale. Save 50% on the Sleep Number 360 Limited Edition Smart Bed, plus free home delivery on all Smart Beds when you add a base. And Cyber Monday. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. And in the second part of this interview with Billy Ray Martin, we go back to London, where Billy had moved to from Berlin, and where her career really started. And you, you went to these first clubs that were yeah, really I sort did. of opening up, weren't they? There was, uh, yeah. I think it was the Paul Oakenfold Night at Heaven, that actually started in the club in Hungerford Lane. Do you remember the club behind Heaven, the little one? There was actually heaven was two clubs. It was the I do club. the little it's one. A, I went to yeah. later for some techno and stuff. I, I do, yeah, yeah, yeah. That little place. It was great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It started there, and then it then it grew into the into the bigger club. I mean, almost immediately because yeah. it was one of those things. So you'd been there, hadn't you? You'd you'd actually experienced that. What what was it like? Because I went to Shoom with Kim Mazel when that opened. Yes, I and, went uh, there. <laughs> and that was just genius. <laughs> you know, the, I, met Mark Moore. I met Mark Moore there and said to him, I want to sing in your group. And he said, fine. <laughs> you know, that was that. Um, so were you aware of who was doing what? Were you actually very aware? Oh God, of yeah. who, you know, I mean, so when you went out, you could sort of say, ah, look, there's so-and-so and make a no, beeline because, in a way. <laughs> no, not at all, because that didn't happen in the beginning. In the beginning, I heard there's this new music, this new kind of music, which nobody knows yet, but there's a few people that go to heaven on a, I think, it, I don't know if it was a Wednesday or whatever it was, you know, Thursday, I have no idea. And that, and there, there are some strange dances that people do and, you know, and, and, and it's something to check out. So I just went and there were literally 20 people on the dance floor in the big room at heaven. And they were doing sort of robotic dances and they played acid house. And there were some people standing around the dance floor with their, with their arms folded in front of them and they were very skeptical you know and there were some hip-hop guys and all all kinds of people standing there going nah you know and what the fuck is this you know and I I loved it immediately went back next week so now you didn't have 20 people on the dance floor but you had all the hip-hop guys and all the other guys also on the dance so this grew like wildfire three weeks later you had for for 500 people it really was that amazing you know and then there was no more you know the hip-hop guys don't like it and the rare groove guys don't like it they were all there you know so I mean the shoom when I was at shoom there was this massive energy to the club I mean it was it was absolutely incredible there was you know and 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 I really I really love that but tell me about this meeting with, with Mark Moore because um you must have gone up to him and he wouldn't have known who you are. So no, how, how did he react? Sung. No, because I, I hadn't sung on anything yet in, in, in England. Um, but I'd read a, 
an interview in the NME of uh, where Mark was saying that anyone who's crazy enough can sing in S Express. And of course, I loved theme from S Express, you know. Um, there was a mystery to, the, to it, to the video too. I thought, wow, there are all these people, you know, in the video and they're great. And um, so I saw Mark and then plucked up all my courage and went up to him and I said, hi, I'm a singer. And he said, oh, really? And um, I said, you know, and I saw in the NME that <laughs> I could sing in your crew. And he said, give me your phone number. And, you know, if something occurs, I'll, I'll give you a call. And he did. Uh, took a little while. And he called and said, could you come to the studio tomorrow to sing a couple of things? Can you so remember his reaction for the first time you sang? Yeah, I think they were very happy. <laughs> yeah. Songs with, with Mark Moore and that experience with Mark Moore, what do you feel that that gave you? Because suddenly it feels like when I, when I read about that, period or I've, I've heard interviews with you about that period it sounds like you suddenly found a little community to be in yeah because uh, there, you know we we were hey music lover was a big hit and we were booked to uh, play a lot of big festivals and things you know and uh, I was only the guest singer so I could be pretty crazy you know and just sort of tag along which I did but I mean, I, I, I just loved all the people. They were nuts. They were all insane, you know, in a very good way. And Mark was sort of, you know, the, the mastermind behind it all. He just watched all the madness and found it funny, you know. Uh, it's, it's a bit sort of that Andy Warhol thing, you know, you watch the madness and you smile and you, to yourself, you know. And, and, and we were booked a lot in Germany, playing crazy festivals and Italy and, and so, um, yeah, I just had fun, you know. Um, I was, I, I, I don't know if I necessarily fitted in with this, this group, but it was a, a massive experience, you know, really amazing. And I remember we did this, this thing in Italy, which I would love to get a, there's no video of it that, that we can get hold of. Um, we played in this, uh, for a television station in, 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 uh, in uh, Napoli in Naples and I couldn't be bothered to mime to my part <laughs> so first of all I was wearing like a see slightly see-through top and everyone in the group thought it was hilarious because it wasn't really done but to me it was like normal you know just be a bit punk rock and, and they were like giggling and you know so there was that and then when my part came up I want to take you higher I just stood that you know looking bored Mark thought it was hilarious every we we were shown the footage, you know, and Mark saw me not miming. And then anybody else would have kicked me out of the group, you know, um, and he just thought it was hilarious. So it was really, you could just be yourself in S Express. Were you also writing songs at that stage and, and actually sort of developing your own uh, creativity in, in the background, as it were? I had, uh, I yeah, I'd already written a lot of songs in Berlin with the soul, with Billy and the Deep, but and, and also another group. Um, but in in London, yeah, I uh, on Pimps, Bushes, and Prostitutes, I wrote the Who's Gonna Pick Me Up when, which later became that song and that song and that song. Um, so yeah, I I brought, I would always bring along some bits that I'd written 
And uh, I do, uh, at that time, I had already written Talking With Myself, too, which later became the Electribe song. Um, so were, were these songs, OK, I know you wrote some in Berlin on the way, but also in London. Were these songs were, uh, that started to get really influenced by your own um, experiences, your own relationships, your own feelings and whatever? Yeah. Yeah, but that had always been the case, you know, always. Um, so I guess I just developed a little bit, you know, as a, as a writer, probably in earnest, you know, yeah. I mean, what I love about your story is that there's, there are uh, immense moments of highs mm -hmm. <laughs> and there are, you know, the rejection and immense moments of lows. Yeah. There are the comebacks, there are the changes. It's sort of, it's, it's a very, it's like a, it's a film in itself, but a, yeah. you know, a very long film of different dynamics. And one of them is, you know, it includes the cliche of the advert. I mean, it's sort of the cliche in the, in the music business, isn't it? Someone puts an advert in a newspaper, you know, El, Elton John looking for a, you know, a writer and a long comes Bernie Taupin. And yes, it's similarly, yes. but what I love about your advert was the, the terminology, what you wrote. Can you remember what you wrote? Yeah, Soul Rebel Seeks Musicians, Genius Only. Now, if I had seen that advert and I was a musician and I have no talent in this department, but I was a musician and I saw that Genius Only, that would scare the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, I just wanted to make sure I don't get because, you know, there are always a lot of song, so-called songwriters around, but they just want to have a hit record and write for commercial commercials. And so, you know, and I just didn't want them to even come along. You know? Do you know someone who replied to, to that ad? And he won't remember this. Glenn Matlock no. from The Pistols. Oh, uh, wow. <laughs> who at the time was obviously no longer in The Pistols, you know, and he he left a message I, I, he left a message on my answering machine he won't, he would not remember me probably or that incident but my answering machine had uh, the pistol song EMI on on my on my answering machine when <laughs> so when you called me it would play a pistol song and then there was a message when I got home saying I wrote that <laughs> so <laughs> So I called him back and we talked, but I, I don't know why, but we never met. Uh, uh, you know, I think he said, you know, I'm, I'm forming a band or I'm doing something. And somehow, for some reason, um, I, I hooked up with the other guys instead. So, so but when, <laughs> that is an amazing story. Amazing, you know, <laughs> the idea of you and Glenn Matlow is also phenomenal. The, um, did you meet the geniuses and did you think they were geniuses when you met them? <laughs> no, because they looked like an East German rock band when I met them. They, they, will, I've, they, will, they would hate me for saying that. No, because they were just starting to dabble in the same kind of music, the acid house and the house and the dance music that I was interested in. But when they came, they didn't really make that clear. You know, they just sort of said, well, we're in this band and, you know, we don't like our singer and we're looking for someone. And I said, nah. <laughs> so they kept calling me, Brian kept calling me saying, yeah, but we have a studio in Birmingham, you know, and you can bring your songs. And I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm coming, you know. So, and I basically walked in with three demos. And, and when Brian heard the Talking With Myself demo, which was of course completely different from what it later became, 
he said, you know, Billy, I think that's the song that we should do. And I said, okay. So that's what we did. And so I think I did find my geniuses. You know, I really feel, especially, you know, now listening to the new, the new, you know, the new and in inverted commas album that, that's out. I just can't overstate how brilliant they are. And at the time, you know, sometimes when you're making music in a group, you don't even realize it. What was the dynamic between you at first? Were, were you very much in control in the studio or were they, or was it really a sort of thing of the contribution came from every angle? Because sometimes there is a, there is a dynamic. And, and I can tell that you are quite a strong character, even from this interview. <laughs> You know, well, and I that's would, probably would, comes from your grandmother. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So, I, I mean, I would bring the records, you know. I would bring Julian Jonas' Jealousies and Lies. And, and, and I said, that's the production, you know. And I would bring Persuasion. And, you know, I would bring Soul Records, which they already knew. They already loved all that music. Um, and, uh, you know, but then, of course, so they they also were already playing around with stuff and so it came together and i think their influence can't be overstated you know and even though i was always moaning about this and that element of the production or you know um it was very much um everybody br brought their influence in and that, that i can't overstate how much you can hear that on this new album because when i listened to joe joe was the the drum guy but also doing the hooks you know the all those beautiful craftworky hooks and stuff i mean wow you know he just came up with that and that was suddenly just there for me to sing over you know and then and so I could go on and on about all of them, bringing something that they already had, but that they had not been able to explore fully, you know. So I think we, we gave to each other, you know. In terms of the personal dynamic, it's difficult, you know, if you ever try to join four brummies, you know, um, I mean, they, they're, not, they're their own breed and they were already a gang. So I was very much the outsider, you know, and uh, we, we became closer as time went on, you know, but there were also frictions and pressures and, you know, it all went to pop at some point, you know, so, but I certainly success, felt- You know, you did have success initially and, yeah. and, I, and, but you stayed in London, didn't you? And they were in Birmingham. Yeah. during this period and you went up there and, and recorded and then right. um the album came out but you 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 had success how did that success feel and what was your vision of that success where did you think that was now gonna go it's so funny because i never thought of it it was almost like i'd come from berlin i went through some real poverty it, in London and suddenly we weren't poor anymore. It was actually the same for the guys, you know. We were all piss poor before that and suddenly we had a bit of money. Um, but in terms of the success, I never thought about it. I just went, yeah, well, that's what I was trying to say all along in my songs, you know, and, and suddenly everyone's writing, here's this great new soul singer. And, and they were interviewing me with questions that, that that reflected that. And I was like, yeah, 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 of course, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, but I wasn't big headed about it. I was just, yeah, well, that's my story. And finally I can tell it, you know? So I, was, I, I wasn't even stopping for a minute to think about it. I never thought about it. I just, you know, cause I was, the concepts for videos and clothing and styling, that all came from me as well. So I was busy. 
Science proves quality sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed senses your movements and automatically adjusts to help keep you both effortlessly comfortable. And it's temperature balancing, so you stay cool. So you're at your best for yourself and those you care about most. Life-changing sleep, only from Sleep Number. It's our Black Friday sale. Save 50% on the Sleep Number 360 Limited Edition Smart Bed, plus free home delivery on all Smart Beds when you add a base. And Cyber Monday. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com. You're listening to Pop, the History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. You talked earlier about sort of self-esteem and a lack of self-esteem. This really suggests that there wasn't a lack of self-esteem by that stage. No, there was. I just didn't stop. Yeah, I just didn't stop to reflect on anything. So what what was the lack of self-esteem at that stage when you're when you're successful and you are getting, you know, I mean, you got critically great attention when Mm -hmm. journal music journalists start liking your stuff. Mm -hmm. I think for artists it you know it means a huge amount it means a huge amount for the audience but Mm. the critical side of the audience loving it as well Mm. is you know is another sort of positive so I just wonder what that self-esteem was like and that feeling I never I was too busy trying to be myself trying to be myself not being myself you know that's just trying so hard I was too busy I never noticed you know, I'm on top of the pops shimmying away. When I look at it now, those performances, <laughs> they were strange, but they were also quite good, you know. Because I was taking dance lessons from one of the best dancers ever, Suki Miles, you know. Because And she taught me all that stuff, you know. And I, <laughs> so I really, I just wanted to be the best I could be, you know, final, you know what I mean? And I would always like... Um, try and add something else to it. I was never satisfied. You know, we took Suki on tour with us. I wanted her on stage next to me. You know, I wanted to do like a, a dancing together. I just didn't want to be just by myself there, you know. And, and uh, so I was always just trying to add the next thing to try and be myself and figure out what else can I do to make this work, you know. What did the yeah. Depeche Mode gig do to your, you know, to supporting Depeche Depeche Mode, what did that do to your confidence? Because it does sound horrendous. Yeah, it was. Um, I, I mean, like somebody said I should do a, like a eight-part Netflix series about my whole experience in the music industry because I haven't really, it's never been written down or, you know, I'm not about to write a book anytime soon. Um, it was, at, in those days, Depeche Mode's fans were sort of really hardcore you know, and they they would just not want a, any support group on stage. It didn't matter who you were. So we were bottled off stage every night, you know, and we had to stand there and take it and face it. Sometimes I didn't want to go out. Sometimes I didn't go out because I just, it, I, I was that distraught by it all, you know. I, I didn't understand it at first. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to do this for two months, you know. And the band Depeche Mode, they were feeling sorry for us, you know. And they said, yeah, they do that to all the groups, you know. And um, so, and I think the band started breaking up because of it, because we were just quite unhappy, you know. Well, the pressures must have been immense. You know, if you go out on stage and you're having, you know, missiles of certain sorts thrown at you. One thing, you know, that um, you had tomatoes thrown at you. And I just thought, like, (laughs) 
Why? How do people get hold of tomatoes that are They bring them in plastic bags in Paris. It's in Paris. It's a fucking sport, and apparently. <laughs> Apparently, the Beatles didn't go back for 14 years after they played in Paris once earlier in their career. They bring plastic bags. I don't know if they still do it now, those bastards. They bring plastic bags with coins, shoes, tomatoes, vegetables, and just to fucking throw them at you. And there was this, there was a, there's a see, there were all these things where, where now I can laugh about it and the group can, could laugh about it. At the time, nobody laughed about it. There was this one thing where we were playing a song and the lights would always go, go down at, in that particular moment in, in the song. Cause there were, I think there were three nights in Paris in this big stadium. And um, and so the lights went down, you know, because we were already being, you know, bottled off stage and stuff. And we were standing there and the lights went down and I felt this drizzle. And I thought, that's interesting, like a rain effect coming from, you know, somewhere. And when the lights went back up, I sort of turned around and Les on his bass keyboard, at his bass keyboard, he was standing there covered in tomatoes. <laughs> And one of the tomatoes had switched the keyboard off. And we were all looking at him like, oh my God. And it was so funny, but it wasn't at that time. You know what I mean? And then I remember going after the show and I turned around to the band and I said, after the song, we're off stage, we're going. We're not, you know, so we, did, we went off stage. Then we went down to the canteen to eat uh, with Dupesh Mode there. And the caterers, they said, would you like some tomatoes with your, <laughs> with your meal? You know, so they were taking a mick out of us, you know, but at that time we were not smiling, I can tell you, you know. No, I can imagine that. I mean, it's funny <laughs> to hear a story like that. You know, it yeah. is definitely funny to hear a story like that. But to be on the receiving end, night after night, and mm. to have that humiliation, mm. um, it's something that grows within you and is yeah. very destructive. Um, yeah. How do you think that played into you had the you know you had the manager Tom Watkins who uh, was also a quite destructive uh, yeah. character, right? Um, and he was trying to split up the band, as I understand. Mm -hmm. Um, mm. which is sort of a classic thing that, that yeah. you know, some managers do. And I, I never know where it really comes from. Did he have his yeah. reason? Did he have a particular yeah. reason? Financial? He wanted someone solo? Well, he wanted this? I mean, to be honest, uh, he tried, he did it to Bros and the he tried to sack Chris Lowe from the Pet Shop Boys. I mean, you know, but I, a lot of people in his office, his staff and, and also his co-manager, they would take me aside and they would say he does that to all the women. So go figure, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's terrible. And mm. um, of course, you know, you so you have this horrendous humiliation with Depeche Mode. You you know, you have the problems with Tom Watkins. Mm. Then you don't have a hit with Inside Out, mm -hmm. and then you have the humiliation with the second album in mm -hmm. terms of. The record company can you tell me about that moment that it was rejected 
and what that well, did. I, I think we'd already been arguing as a band between us, you know. So there wasn't a lot of there weren't a lot of good feelings left for for many reasons after the tour, you know. Um, and and we would try and. Uh, I remember we were musically unsure of ourselves, which listening back to the album now, it's crazy. We had, you know, we could have, I think we knew there was some, some stuff, but I don't, I don't think we were sure that we had an album, you know. Um, and we were also sort of put in the studio with a, another producer to help us out and, you know, all that big record company stuff that happens to groups, you know, and then I don't think we were very sure. And we did some other demos as well, which uh, which uh, I'm not going to um, put out there because we were just sort of because I would come in with drum and bass, you know, my new my, my latest discovery, you know, let's do some of that. And, and I remember the guys saying, yeah, OK, but I don't know if our demos are good enough. And, you know, so and I think so the final straw is then, you know, we deliver this album. And I mean, we did put across that there are a couple of mixes that might need looking at again, you know, but but here it is, you know, here's. And then we were told it's a, it's a pile of shit. What literally those words? Uh, well, our A&R guy, someone put it to us. Um, at the time we'd gotten rid of Tom Watkins, so I can't remember who actually told us that we were being dropped from the label. And we were told that the managing director had said, what's with this soul shit? <laughs> so we then were without a deal. We tried to get signed and didn't get signed right away. And I think it was different times then because you didn't have the digital world out there where bands can just go, fuck it, we, we can release this, you know. I mean, you could form a label, but you'd have to be a very strong unit to do that. And, you know, because it was all about physical, you know, vinyl pressings, you know, um, and cassettes and, you know, whatever people did at the time. So I don't think that culture was out there yet of being totally self-sufficient. So I think we just broke up instead, you know. Yeah. I mean, rejection is a very hard thing to deal with. It's hard when you're not successful, but when you've been successful mm. and then you get rejected, it's a bit of a double whammy. So how did that make you feel inside? And what was your reaction to it? Did you sort of hide away at first? I went to Warner Chapel and, and they had a demo studio, a very good one, actually. And I said, look, I don't really know what to do, but, you know, um, we broke up. I told them the band had broken up and I said, well, let me do some demos, you know, in, in the studio. So I, I, I did some demos, and, <laughs> but I remember having absolutely no money. And so that was the hardest actually to be, yeah, to be, be really like without really worrying about having a roof over my head, you know? So I just did demos for quite a long time. I mean, I know that financial uh, uh, problem yeah. because if you, you know, I mean, yeah. after I, I, my career sort of died at one point, I had, <laughs> you know, before that I had a lot of money and I lost mm -hmm. everything. I lost my house because, mm -hmm. you know, you, you live on a certain amount of debt sometimes mm -hmm. as well. And exactly. when, when the carpet's pulled away, 
then yeah. then there's really something it's about existence and it's yeah. about that moment of existence and yeah. that is crushing for your creativity for a while yeah. was yeah. it for you no because i just did demos and songwriting and and so the creativity is just i don't think i had any support network i think that was the problem about what to do with it you know i had no manager no band uh, no co-musicians you know i would just sort of work with the odd person here and there and um so i think that was the problem more than anything that i had no um infrastructure in which to operate and and have my voice maybe put out there again um that didn't happen for two years and it only happened when because i was so fed up but because i had at that so too about i would say a year and a bit after the band got dropped i'd written your loving arms you know did you write that with david harrow yeah he did a bit of a techno-y little backing track which I still have the cassette of actually and I wrote a song on top you know uh, so I, I had Your Loving Arms and I had demoed it already uh, pretty much sounding the way it ended up later sounding and um, so I would go uh, around some record companies you know and I think the publishers probably helped me get a meeting here and there and it was rejected absolutely everywhere so I went to New York was rejected there, you know. And later when it was a big hit in America, they were all like, oh shit, well, you know, we, we wish we would have signed it. And I'm like, yeah, well, you didn't, you know. So anyway, no one signed that. And then um, I, I remember, and then I had a really terrible manager for a short while, you know, who did absolutely nothing. And one day I was so fed up. And I said to him, you know, don't you think I should do a short showcase gig with my demos? Um, and he just went, well, I don't get involved in that sort of thing. And that was the final straw. And I just called the jazz cafe and said, let me do a gig there. You know, and they said, sure. And I was signed literally the next day. Now, Your Loving Arms was, in, in essence, for me, I see that as a gay man, as a gay anthem. Uh, you know, and it was something, and I have wonderful memories of that song. <laughs> and there's something so warm and wonderful and... Um, it's almost like an insular experience of love. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's very, it's a very beautiful song. And you. Um, you perform that in uh, Miami at a, a, a mm. gay club in Miami. Can you tell me about that? All the that time. I performed it. I think there wasn't a gay club in Miami where I didn't perform. Oh. <laughs> it was, oh my God, it was great. I mean, my first performance in was in New York at Junior Vasquez Club. Um, and I can never remember if it was Sound Factory or Twilo at the time. It might have been the last night at Sound Factory, actually. And I had no idea that the song was already so big in the clubs. Like, I had zero idea. And I remember six in the morning, my performance, you know, and I'm coming out and this wave of shout screams and love, you know, coming towards me, like literally like this wave and I hadn't even sung a note the beat started and people went crazy so that was the first time I realized oh my god this is happening big which without junior wouldn't wouldn't have happened you know and I, I'm forever thankful and so then uh I would then later go back and then 
I ended up moving to New York. So then I performed around the United States. And I, I was always go back to Miami. But at that time, when the song was at its, at its biggest in, in America, Miami was incredible, you know. I mean, literally just waves of love. And it was as if myself and people had been waiting for that song, you know. Because I remember in one club, um, I said, well, she would have been waiting long enough to sing that song and people just screamed when I said that, you know. And so it was just so beautiful, you know, such a moment. Yeah, yeah. no, I mean, as I said, I mean, that song for me is something very special and something of an, of, it is of an, of an era. And I was uh, listening to it this morning again mm -hmm. and it brought up all those uh, <laughs> wonderful feelings and emotions and warmth. And that's yeah. why I think it's so beautiful. Now I'm going to jump jump because I want to talk about the album, obviously. And <laughs> this um, this album was stuck, in a sense, in your drawer for yeah. thirty years, yes. and, you, and you didn't think about it. You never thought about what that is. You never listened to it in between. Never. never. So when you finally took it out the drawer and listened mm. to it, how did you see the person? Mm -hmm. that had sung and written those songs all those mm -hmm. years ago to the person you are today? Well, it's funny because when I, when we mastered the recordings, because they were very low level on adapt, you know, and so um, it took a lot of restoring and, and trying different approaches to mastering to actually hear everything. And then, so once I could hear everything, I was amazed because actually every word was about what I was going through at that time. And to have had that opportunity at the time, I wasn't even aware of that, you know. Again, something that maybe you don't appreciate when you're that close to it. But, you know, every word, every experience, I mean, it, it's about my relationship that I was in at the time. And then about some other things too, of course, you know. But yeah, so I'm, I was moved. I was moved for, for, the, for the person I was, because I, I had never been moved before by that. I just did it, you know, you do it, you move on, you know. And the band breaking up wouldn't have, you know, exactly made anyone go back and listen again, you know. I'm sure that the group, the other guys probably didn't, you know. But now that, that actually made me feel very moved. What, what would your older self have said to your younger self? at that time to make you feel better <laughs> i don't know oh my god um because an album is a snapshot of all these feelings emotions and thoughts so mm -hmm. it is very much where you were at at that time and as mm -hmm. we change and develop in life we reach mm -hmm. another point which is often more comfortable with ourselves let's say mm -hmm. and and who we are and mm -hmm. not having the same problems and angst and whatever that we yeah. had when we were younger so you know is is there something very comforting about knowing mm. um not only that i mean not only that the music is fantastic and not only what you created there has immense value today mm. but knowing that you got through a period and got to where you are today mm. well i think i'm not sure exactly what i would say but what strikes me is the realness in the lyrics um and the delivery, I was just shouting it out. Um, I mean, the, 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 the 
determination with which I'm telling my story. And I think there are two examples. One is she, the first song, Insatiable Love. She flies into the room just in time for his call and it's time for a change. You know, so that was happening. And I probably did that daily, you know. And, um, you know, this kind of telling. And then this, um, she wants to eat the whole world. She, want, she tosses and turns like a secret ballet, you know, uh, aching for the thrill, the thrill of not feeling pain. Wow, I mean, that's heavy shit, you know. And I was, I, I, how did I even come up with those words? So I would say something about, well, girl, you certainly kept it real, you know. And then the other uh, song, Deadline for My Memories, where I'm like, there's a body on the floor that looks like me. You know, I mean, that's me crying. That's about me crying for the breakup of the relationship, you know, and thinking, that's, is this me that's going through all this trauma, you know? Has and it changed your memories of those times? Because, you know, like we have, we have times in our life where we feel, oh, I was pretty unhappy back then. But then mm -hmm. later on, you look back and you look upon it differently and you don't see it in the, in the same way. And this album is connected to a lot of difficult experiences, not just mm -hmm. musically, but mm -hmm. also what was happening with your career and everything back mm -hmm. then. It, has this actually sort of given you a warm feeling of some sort of positive outcome? Well, it was the beginning of me getting in touch with myself because the relationship breakup, which went on and on and on, um, and me acting like some nutcase about it, you know, started the process of who, who am I? Um, and I bought all these books, all the spiritual and self-help and esoteric stuff, you know, about who am I really? And who's this person that's looking for someone to validate me, you know, and, and that didn't happen. So what else is there? So I bought all these books and it helped me tremendously. I mean, that's the, that was the start of me going, there's something here that I haven't yet done, you know, and that's me. <laughs> I've never been to me. <laughs> I've been to paradise. <laughs> Seriously. So it started the process which is ongoing today. So without that, I wouldn't have started that, you know. You're listening to Pop, The History Makers, with me, Steve Blame. Creativity is also um, a compensation for our wounds in life. And, yes. and we work through our wounds through creativity. I'm a writer today. And for me, that's so important to do. But at the same time, yeah. I've done a shitload of therapy <laughs> as <Yes>. well. <laughs> because therapy is something where I've really realised, I believe, who I am and become mm. much more comfortable with who I am. Yet, mm. yet I can still look back at my wounds, let's call mm -hmm. them my childhood wounds or whatever, mm. and be able to, to um, take things out of that for my mm. creativity, my writing today. Mm -hmm. So yeah. has it changed the way that you deal with creativity because you now have a greater awareness of who yeah. you are? Oh God, yeah, I'm really in control now. And I make a lot of mistakes still, because, you know, I produce my own records now. You know, I've got four albums on the go, which are all hopefully um, nearing completion soon. And um, 
you know, and I'm really having to pull my thing together, you know, to make them happen. Um, and because being the producer, which, you know, I, I'm having to learn as I go, you make mistakes and I do, you know, but generally the outcome's been uh, immense. I'm, I'm so happy with it. And the, the mistakes I have to try and do with them, you know, but so I'm, I'm really in control though now. I mean, the, the reaction to the album has been universally positive. The Electra, yeah, I yeah, know. sorry, Electra, yeah. Wow. So yeah. Uh, absolutely, I mean, phenomenally positive, and it's almost like yeah. you know, this is where the movie script comes. You, you right. know, <laughs> no one would have believed it. Do you know what I mean? That you can dig right. up an album thirty years ago, and it is so feels so current, mm. and it you know people are so hungry for it, yeah. and and it and it works so well. Now there must be an immense satisfaction going on within you that this was all worthwhile. Is that, is that how you feel today? Yeah, I felt when the, the press articles started coming in, I was su more surprised than anyone. I honestly just expected another, you know, yeah, there's a couple of people who are gonna pick up on it, but nothing will really happen. And then it all sort of started going on. And, um, and I was elated, I was really, really really happy you know really, really i mean just thrilled really and surprised <laughs> so well yeah. it's a brilliant album i mean i uh, yeah i've been through it a few times so the, the <laughs> last few days and i've really you know enjoyed um the tracks on the uh, on the album and yeah. each individual track has um they're very strong you know there's 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 not a weak track you know it's all oh, very strong okay. <laughs> and and but that really impressed me that there was so mm -hmm. there was so much there and you you hear that and you look back and you think who was that record company executive I know to right say, you know this is a part of shit tell <laughs> me about it I know it's and, and we believed it that's the bad thing about it we we I think deep in our hearts we actually thought oh god you know because we we were discussing a couple of the mixes and we were saying oh that's not very good yet you know so rather than someone saying yeah that's fine it's something we can fix someone said you know get lost do you know what I mean so it, yeah it really broke us I I'd love to see his face today <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he cares. I don't think he would remember any of it. You know what I mean? Because, you know, yeah. Yeah, no, I, but that is, I mean, I know revenge is silly, but in a way there is this, <laughs> there is this little taste of, of revenge because it's in yeah. the air that this mistake, you know, yeah. he made such a mistake years ago. Yeah. And that mistake has led to something which is really fantastic and perfect for today. You. Now you talked about these new albums and one of them is inspired by French music. I understand uh, Charles yeah. Aznavour, Jacques Brel. And yeah. was, it, was, was French music always in your life? Because if I remember my you know, youth, my mum right. loved these sort of torch singers and Charles yes. Aznavour was amongst them. Of course, them. you know. I mean, Charles Aznavour was the French Liza Minnelli, you know, um, and his songwriting, his words, that what he wrote about was so ahead of its time. And it, they, he was singing, you know, the, the song, What Makes a Man, you know. So here's a young straight man singing about what it is to be gay and being persecuted by society. That was not done, you know, that was no a no-go, you know, and he had hits with it, you know what I mean? Hit records. And I mean, all of that is so powerful. And um, 
but generally I grew up with um, the albums inspired by everything French, French movies, movie soundtracks of the 1970s, uh, especially a composer, Francois de Roubaix. Um, that's how that all started. I heard his, his music and I thought, holy crap, I mean, really? I'm going to do that. <laughs> and then it quickly turned into something totally different. Uh, um, but you can hear, you know, that influence. And then it's about my some of my favorite films, which are either French or about, or set in Paris. Um, and the characters in those films, I mean, I read the film scripts and stuff, you know, and so I always make up stories around what else could have happened or how did the person in that movie really feel if they're not saying that in the script, you know? So I write songs around those characters. So it's about all that. And then I thought, well, and that would be the opportunity to also sing my favorite Aznavour songs and a couple of Jacques Brel as well. I mean, my favorite yeah. Aznavour song is Yesterday When I Was Young. I did and, that one, yeah. Oh my God, I just love that song. And, and guess who I played it with the, as a members of the Tinder Sticks, the group, the Tinder Sticks. And because I wanted to make it really weird, like some, like a hypnotic movie soundtrack, you know? And I discovered the Tinder Sticks film soundtracks and other stuff they've done. And I thought I should just ask those guys, but you don't just go and ask an existing group to come and play, but they came, three of them and played. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't even believe I'm in the studio with them, you know? And uh, so, so they're very strange. And then, uh, yes, two days ago, we recorded a 40 piece string orchestra as well for this. And I couldn't be more thrilled, you know, it's just like, yeah. And that sounds like it's a really heart project. You know what I mean? And I mean, yesterday when I was young, he, he was 25 when he wrote that. It's just crazy that what that man did, you know? So. Yeah, he was also an amazing film actor. Yes. And, and as well. And I, you know, but yesterday that when I was young, I've always thought, although it's, it's the, re, you know, the, the, the regret and everything. Yeah. Um, it's the song that I definitely want at my funeral. Yeah, right. <laughs> Even I though know. I don't regret anything in my life, it's still the <laughs> song that I want. Because I know everyone's going to be in tears. It's going to really cause havoc. <laughs> but how brave it was to sing about these feelings that someone has. Uh, you know, he was singing about an old man who regrets, you know, everything that he hasn't done. And he was 25 when he wrote that. Or, you know, when he wrote things like, uh, what makes a man about, you know, I'm strip teasing in a gay bar, you know. And um, this was after, I mean, this man was slaughtered by the French press. He said he couldn't sing, he was ugly, he was short, and he shouldn't be in show business, you know. He was booed off stage. He was, the press hunted him down, you know. And this guy just went, fuck you. And then when he did, I think it was La Boheme, he did that, that performance, you know. And then suddenly applause came. And then he goes and writes about a gay man when you, you're not supposed to be gay. I mean, this, this guy, <laughs> you know, crazy, amazing. Yeah, but this, uh, I just finally, I want to end now because it's finally in that when you talk about 
you know, in that way, with so so much emotion about uh, you know another another singer and and their experience and how they have had to deal with the world. I can see where your power came from and where you've had to deal with your experiences along the way that have been, you know, unbelievably fantastic and unbelievably terrible. You know, they've been extremely hard and yeah. and and come out of it in such a positive way with yeah. such a positive future. So in the end, I just want to thank you for all the creativity you've put out into the world. Thank Some you. of the most amazing music, particularly this album. But I still have to say, because it's my favourite and it has such an appeal to me, your loving arms was something that so touched me uh, back then. And it was such a wonderful feeling. And because as a gay man and this sort of gay anthem of feeling, having these arms around me, Yes. You know, oh, you know what I mean? God. And protected. Don't that make was me cry now. The song, the song was about. So <laughs> Billy Ray Martin. Oh, you're going to make cry. me cry. Don't cry. <laughs> oh, my God. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, no, I didn't want it to end. Well, that's it for this interview with Billy Ray Martin. I'll see you soon. Science proves quality sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed senses your movements and automatically adjusts to help keep you both effortlessly comfortable. And it's temperature balancing, so you stay cool. So you're at your best for yourself and those you care about most. Life-changing sleep, only from Sleep Number. It's our Black Friday sale. Save 50% on the Sleep Number 360 Limited Edition Smart Bed, plus free home delivery on all Smart Beds when you add a base. And Cyber Monday. To learn more, go to sleepnumber.com.